Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Thanks for listening to Unchained, your no-hype resource for all things crypto on the Coindesk Podcast Network. You can also listen to the episodes on the Unchained feed earlier if you subscribe there. Plus, check out all our content on our website, unchainedcrypto.com. One of the superpowers of rollups is that you can customize the execution environment. You know, whereas in a monolithic world, let's say I have a, a, some EIP that I've been trying to push for the Ethereum L1 to a, adopt for the longest time, and uh, it's going to add some functionality to the EVM that's going to enable my application. In a monolithic chain, I have to wait and like kind of lobby, and it's like a political sort of like battle, and it's extremely slow. In the roll-up world, there is none of that. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unchained, your no-hype resource for all things crypto. I'm your host, Laura Shin, author of The Cryptopians. I started covering crypto eight years ago, and as a senior editor at Forbes, was the first mainstream media reporter to cover cryptocurrency full-time. This is the February 20th, 2024 episode of Unchained. Polkadot is a leading layer zero blockchain with over 2,000 developers. And the Polkadot 2.0 upgrade will be a massive accelerator for the ecosystem, making it faster, more secure, and adaptable. Perfect for GameFi and DeFi to build, grow, and scale. Join the community at polkadot.network slash ecosystem slash community. Streamline your DeFi with VaultCraft, the ultimate on-chain toolkit for deploying custom automated DeFi products on any EVM chain. Join Volcraft's referral program, unite with the community, and supercharge your crypto. Details on Volcraft.io. Today's topic is Celestia and modular blockchains, and here to discuss are Nick White and Mustafa Al-Bassam. Welcome, Nick and Mustafa. Hey, Laura. Good to be here. So Celestia launched on Mainnet back in October to much fanfare. And it's known as a data availability layer, and it takes a modular approach to blockchains. We've covered this a little bit on the podcast before, not a ton. Um, so Mustafa, Celestia started with you um, with a project you were working on called Lazy Ledger. Tell us how you came up with this idea to create what is now finally morphed into Celestia. Sure. So this was when I was doing a PhD in blockchain scaling in 2016, 2019. And I was just trying to think about a lot of different ways to scale blockchains. Specifically, layer one scaling. How do we scale the base layer of a blockchain? And one of the earlier, early research proposals I worked on was um, sharding. And this was back in the in the, about five years ago. The Ethereum 2.0 roadmap kind of revolved around sharding. And it was like you have 1,024 shards, and it was very complicated. And as part of that, I created uh, with my co-authors 
one of the first papers on how to do sharding called Chainspace. And that was later spun out into a project that was acquired by Facebook, but I didn't join Facebook. And instead I kind of focused more on my PhD and I started thinking about, well, like how can we fundamentally scale the base layer? Um, and I started thinking about like trying to unpick the components of the blockchain and trying to think from really from first principles and trying to unlearn everything I learned. And to let's say if we try, if we create a blockchain from scratch, fundamentally, what is a blockchain and what is the simplest blockchain we can create? And that's where Lazy Ledger kind of started out. It's the answer to the idea is like, what is the simplest blockchain you can make that is useful for developers, that is as minimal as possible, and still make it useful to deploy applications applications on top of that. And that's kind of where Lazy Ledger started. And it's basically just a blockchain that only does consensus and data availability. It does not have smart contracts. It does not have execution or anything fancy. It's just a very simple blockchain where developers can post data in, onto it. And it turns out that is fundamentally what a blockchain does. And it's an extremely useful prim primitive to people building things like rollups. And that makes it it's extremely useful to scale uh, rollups and other layer two technologies. And when you were trying to do that, were there like particular problems you were seeing in the blockchains at that time in 2019 that you felt like this vision could kind of solve for? Yeah. So... This was back in the day before rollups even existed. And when I was focusing on sharding, the missing piece of the puzzle to sharding was this problem called the data availability problem. And it's, it's the same problem that rollups have today. But the idea is that how can, if you have like a thousand shards, which the Ethereum roadmap had before, how can each shard make sure that each other shard is being honest? And to do that, for each shard to make sure each other shard is being honest, it needs to make sure that all the data behind each shard was made available and published to the internet. And so this was like a really hard problem at the, at the time. How can we make sure that all the data on a chain was actually published without actually having downloaded all that data yourself? And that's where um, this idea of data availability proofs and data availability sampling came from. And it, that was kind of like the missing piece of the puzzle at the time to the Ethereum 2.0 roadmap. But once that puzzle was kind of figured out, I kind of realized, well, this is, this is actually, this final piece of the puzzle is actually the, the core component of what, of what a blockchain really does. A blockchain is fundamentally just a, a data publication layer. It's basically a data availability engine. And Lazy Ledger was the idea to just do only that and scale that extremely well. And it turns out that if you just do that and, and scale that extremely well, you can build any kind of application on top of it using rollups. Or layer twos, because rollups are basically just are basically blockchains in themselves that use another blockchain for data availability. Yeah, and so what this ends up doing is kind of you know take this original vision of a blockchain where all the different functions all happen on one layer and sort of separate it out into pieces. So this is how we have this idea now of modular blockchains. So Nick, can you just talk a little bit about that vision for modular blockchains? Like what parts end up being modular and, um, you know, what are, you know, the different parts of a modular stack? Sure. So as uh, Mustafa started to explain, the original vision for, for blockchains starting from Bitcoin and Ethereum and even Solana, most of the, block, the layer one chains that people know of today, followed a monolithic design, meaning that they do all of the core functions of a blockchain within one protocol. But then as Mustafa started to think about things more fundamentally and, and from first principles, 
distilling down those functions, he realized that there's no reason why they need, all need to be coupled together. And in fact, you get these superpowers when you start to decouple them and do them on, in se as separate protocols. And so the three main functions are consensus, which is the ordering of data. So, you know, if we're all on a, you know, sharing a blockchain, we need to know and agree on what is the order of events or the order of transactions. Um, if the order is mixed up, then we're not seeing the same things. The second thing is data, uh, data availability, which is a confusing term, but it's, it's data publication, essentially. It's about being able to prove to someone else that the data behind those transactions has been released and is public information that anyone can download and see. So data availability kind of provides this ability to audit the, the chain and see what's actually happening. And then the last one is the one that people are probably the most familiar with, which is execution. And execution is uh, essentially where smart contracts and all the business logic and the applications for these blockchains lives. And that's where the transactions actually get interpreted and then verified into some output state. And so those are the three main layers. And Celestia focuses on consensus and data availability. And then you have rollups and layer two technologies that focus on, on the execution part. And so those two things are kind of the like, perfect complements of each other. So Celestia focuses on scaling the base layer of just consensus and data availability. And by focusing only on data availability and consensus, it can be way more scalable than than a standard monolithic L1 that has to do everything all wrapped up into one package. And also, likewise, for these execution layers, these rollups and L2s, they just focus on that one thing and they can be really, really scalable and also be more customizable. So one of the advantages of modular blockchains, aside from what I just mentioned, is that you open up the stack for more innovation from the, from the developer. So rather than being locked into the EVM or the SVM or any particular execution environment, with a built-in execution layer in a monolithic chain. In a modular chain like Celestia, it's totally uh, expressive and flexible because the developer can choose to run EVM or Solana VM or, or Cosmos SDK or Wasm, anything that they, uh, any kind of execution environment that is best for their application. And they can even customize it and build something that no one's thought of before. So uh, modular blockchains really are a step function change uh, in in the history of blockchain architecture, something that's so interesting to me is so you know we're coming from this world where pretty much most things have been monolithic or at least started that way, even if some of them are morphing into something else. Um, and yet here you guys are, you're kind of full uh, fully on board with this modular vision. And I've even heard you say, Nick, that you um, believe in a world of ten thousand or more rollups. So why is that? Like, why do you think that makes so much sense, or why do you think that's the future? When, you know, so far we mostly what we've had is like something different. Yeah. So I mean, I think the ten thousand rollup uh, endgame is very interesting because it's very controversial to to many people. Um, in some way, it's kind of like the opposite of Solana's endgame, where you only have like one single chain. But um, I think the way that I see it is kind of very similar to the evolution of Web2. Like if you look at the history of Web2, um, and I'm not saying the analogy by reasoning is good, but I think it's a, it's kind of like an interesting piece of history. Like when Web2, when the web was first created, um, people, the only way to create a website is if you had a physical server somewhere, like you had in your university or on a data center, you, had, you need to own a physical machine. And that was kind of like um, similar to the Bitcoin days where if you create a new blockchain or to create a new decentralized application, you need your own blockchain. But you had Bitcoin was just only for one application. And then 
you had Namecoin, you know, Litecoin, Dogecoin. It was like a different blockchain for each application. But then Ethereum came around um, and then Ethereum kind of revolutionized it because Ethereum, the idea of Ethereum was instead of having a different blockchain for every single application, let's create a general purpose blockchain with a general purpose smart contract environment. And the Web2 analogy to that is kind of very similar to shared web hosting providers. Like back in the day before you had AWS or uh, DigitalOcean, you could like go on like a, 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 service, a service provider like GeoCities or DreamHost or Bluehost, and you could upload the code for your site to those services, and your website would share the same server as many other websites. But the limitations of that is that you had you, you had to create your website in whatever programming language that server supported, which was like at the time PHP or Perl, and that's very similar to Ethereum. And also, you have to share resources with those with these other websites. That's very similar to the idea of Ethereum or the world computer model. You have to create your smart contract in the Ethereum virtual machine, um, also Solidity, and then upload your smart contract to this world computer that and you're sharing the same smart contract as everyone else. But maybe not every single use case needs to share the same execution environment or the same computer as every other decentralized application. And that's what we're seeing recently by with the proliferation of people creating their own custom roll-up chains and um, blockchains. And this was the kind of like vision, the original vision of Cosmos. It's like scaling, anyone can create their own Cosmos chain and every application has its own chain. But again, the problem with that is that there's a lot of overhead to creating your own blockchain. So the idea is that if you look at the Web3 uh, Web analogy, you had the, the, the cloud, the, the creation of, the, of virtual machines and the cloud was a big moment that revolutionized Web2. Because for the first time in history, um, any developer within seconds could have access to their own virtual machine that had the same that had the, that give you the same advantages as having your own physical hardware, but without the disadvantages of having to maintain and own that physical hardware. Because developers had access to their own execution environment, they could install whatever software they wanted, and they could customize it however they wanted. And people were able to play around with new programming languages like GoLang, Rust, and so on and so forth that might not have been as, e as easily possible before if people were limited to the same shared hosting environments. And that's very similar to what we're seeing with roll-up technology. Because roll-ups, what they fun fundamentally allow you to do, they allow you to create your own blockchain, but without the overhead of having to maintain your own proof-of-stake network. So like right now, today, you can go, there's roll-up as a service providers, like you know, Conduit and Caldera and Dimension. You could go on these providers today fill out a form and within seconds, you can have your own roll-up chain deployed immediately. And that's, that's kind of extremely powerful because that allows developers to um, have the, it's like, the, it's, the, it's the same importance as when the cloud came to Web2. It allows developers to have their own fully customized chain and they're no longer limited to the same limitations as they were limited before as EVM was. So, for example, you've got like gaming uh, providers that have created. There's a there's a um, project that man has managed to embed like entire game engines in the EVM by modifying the EVM. So there's just like things that you fundamentally can't economically do on chain as easy as you can do with your own custom EVM uh, execution environment. And and a lot of advantage is that it's inherently scaling because you're not not every application needs to share same gas resources as every other application. Like if you're running your own rollup, you have your own execution. You're not sharing execution resources with everyone else. 
So if one application gets very busy, that doesn't necessarily need to affect other applications. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, just if I think back to, you know, like 2017, 2018, then it's very obvious that this has advantages because, um, or, or even like um, later on with the whole, so 2017, 2018, I was thinking about the ICOs, how they just kind of pushed out every other use case during those periods. And then I guess it would be same for, you know, like during the NFT periods where, Everyone was trying to mint at the same time. Um, so are there specific applications that you feel work better um, on a modular blockchain or or even that are possible with a modular blockchain that wouldn't be when they're having to, you know, share those kinds of resources, you know, share the execution environment with other applications? Yeah, so I think um, like the obvious ones are, you know, like, you know, gaming and NFT chains. Because like, I mean, one of the um, like, common criticisms of this 10,000 rod architecture is that composability becomes harder because you need to keep doing these cross-chain transactions. That is a problem, but it's not. It's a problem that's being solved and it's not a inherent problem. But there's many applications that don't need as much composability, especially like gaming chains or NFT chains. Like there's absolutely no reason why those applications need to be on the same chain or execution environment as, you know, as some high-volume decentralized exchange. But that being said... We do also have, you know, DeFi uh, projects on Celestia, notably, you know, projects like um, Avo. I think something like 70% of all DeFi options trading volume is secured by Celestia as a data availability layer. Um, and, that's, and the reason for that is because it's just simply way cheaper than doing it on-chain. As the cross-chain uh, kind of like interoperability issues and the UX becomes cleaner, I think people will kind of realize it's just, not, it's just better to do those things in roll-ups rather than doing it on-chain. I'll also add a, a few examples too. I think one of the superpowers of rollups is that you can customize the execution environment. You know, whereas in a monolithic world, let's say I have a, a some EIP that I've been trying to push for the Ethereum L1 to a, adopt for the longest time, and uh, it's going to add some functionality to the EVM that's going to enable my application. In a monolithic chain, I have to wait and like kind of lobby, and it's like a political sort of like battle, and it's extremely slow. In the rollup world. There is none of that. You can take the EVM, fork it, add in custom opcodes or functionality, and then just launch it as a rollup, and you have that functionality of the box. So a couple examples that are really powerful are Manta is, has built an EVM chain that has custom opcodes for verifying ZK circuits, and that makes it really cheap for them to do things that are like have privacy or uh, natively, native randomness in the protocol. And that's really powerful for various games or applications like uh, they have a, an application called ZK Hold'em, which is um, sort of like a like an on-chain um, a poker game. Or other other uses are things like adding native account abstraction kinds of things or new cryptographic curves that allow you to use the built-in like uh, enclave in your in your mobile phone as your your wallet. And so these are the kind of things that like you can't do on a monolithic chain like Ethereum because you can't you don't have control to that level of the stack. So um, there's a lot of applications like that where developers are exploring new sort of the frontier of what's possible because modular enables that. All right. So now let's talk about Celestia and how it fits into a modular blockchain. Why don't you describe what Celestia is? So Celestia is a what we describe as a pluggable consensus and data availability layer, which means that it's basically like a very simple blockchain. All it does is it allows developers to post blobs of data to it. That's basically the only use case you can do it. You can just get arbitrary data and post it to Celestia. 
And Celestia's job is to make sure that data is ordered in relation to other data. So you can say, okay, this data came before that data. And to make sure that data is actually pub verifiably published to the entire internet. So there's no like missing data. So that's, that's basically all it does. And it tries to scale that um, extremely well using a technology called data availability sampling. And the basic idea is that um, the way that the blocks are constructed allows um, light nodes or nodes without a lot of resources to gain the very high assurance guarantee that that data was actually published without needing to download all that data. And the way that works is it, the, the, the nodes can download a small random piece, pieces of that block. And if they download enough random pieces, they can have a very high confidence that the entire, that all the data was published. So an, an analogy to explain this is to maybe think of Celestia like a newspaper publisher, sort of. So the, the blocks are sort of like a, a, a new, like a daily publication of the newspaper. And if you're a subscriber, you receive the newspaper and you can read the headlines and see that the data is in there. You don't have to read the whole thing to uh, know that it's all been published. So it's not about... Um, you know, it's not about storing data. Like storing data would be more like a library because a lot of people think that data availability is just data storage like Filecoin or Arweave. But it's actually it's actually like publication. So it's about, you know, roll-up developer comes with a blob, which would be like an article. They would pay the newspaper, say, hey, publish my blob in the news today's date of the newspaper. And uh, then that, that would be included and packaged all up and then distributed to everyone who's running a node in the network. And they'd all be able to really efficiently verify it. So they don't have to read everything themselves, but they can still know that it was uh, published to everyone who everyone else. Yeah, and it's worth noting that publication is effectively, as I mentioned, like the the core thing that a blockchain does. Um, fundamentally, a blockchain is just a proof of publication mechanism to publish arbitrary data, and what, and that's once you have that, you can build anything on top of that um, as layer two or as a roll up. So like developers, as Nick said, you can define their own execution environments or computation environments, whether that's custom EVM or anything else, by using Celestia as the underlying kind of consensus and data availability layer. And so when you talk about how it's just publishing but not storing, essentially it makes the data available for some time period when it's necessary. And then after that, you know, then I guess it's stored elsewhere or something, or I guess... Well, I, is it that it's no longer available after finality on the execution layer or something like that? Like, uh, you know, how, how long is it available? So currently um, we have a CIP uh, that proposes that it's kind of like guaranteed to be, able to be available for 30 days, uh, which is kind of similar to EIP 4844 in Ethereum. In that, in that proposal, it's 21 days. But it's not, it's not as if the data disappears after 30 days. It's more that it's pruned but you'll still be able to download the data from kind of like archival nodes that store longer term data. So it's very likely, it's, it's almost certain that you'll still be able to download, the, download that data, that historical data. It's just that like there's no kind of like in-protocol guarantee that it, it will be downloadable. Or like if you need higher assurance guarantees that you can download it in a certain amount of time, then you probably want to do some kind of like off-chain uh, storage solution so, for example, you've got systems like Filecoin or Arweave that solve this problem or that uh, kind of like incentivize storage. But we, we, we provide a different, Celestia provides a different goal in storage. As Nick said, it provides a publication, which is, which is fundamentally a different thing. So, uh, yeah, again, to like one way to think about this is like, you know, a newspaper 
publisher doesn't keep the newspaper around indefinitely. They publish it, they let people take it and read it and, and all of that, but then they're not expected like, oh, if you ask the newspaper, hey, can you give me the newspaper that was 10 years, that happened 10 years ago, they're not gonna have it on hand. However, there are other services like libraries that actually do store every single newspaper. Uh, and, and you can think of those libraries as, as more of the storage, like the data storage protocols like Arweave or Filecoin. And storage, like data availability is something that is critical to the safety of blockchains. Like it's, it's a critical to the security, whereas the, the storage, and, and it has like much uh, tougher trust assumptions that you have to tackle. Whereas data storage is just, you need one honest party to store the data. Uh, and it's not as important for safety. It's more about the ability for like liveness, the ability to regenerate the state of the chain. So they're very different things. Uh, but the, the the problem is that data availability sounds a lot like data storage. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I um, when I was first learning this concept, like didn't fully understand in the beginning. So we talked. You guys referenced um, the term data availability sampling. So talk a little bit about how that works. You know what it is exactly, and how you make that secure. Well, Mustafa co-invented it, so I'll let him take this one. Yeah, general idea is that the goal is how can I make sure that some block or some piece of data was published to the internet without me having to download that entire block or data. Because it, it, sounds, it, it almost sounds impossible, right? How can I, if I have this data, if I have the hash of the data, how can I know that this data was published? And data availability sampling seeks to solve that problem. The way it works, it uses this kind of like, this, this mathematical primitive called erasure coding. And erasure coding is a mathematical primitive used in a lot of kind of older technologies like CD-ROMs and satellite communications. If you can think of a CD-ROM, if you scratch a CD-ROM, and maybe this is more for the older audience, if, if you remember this, but if you scratch a CD-ROM, your computer can still read the data on that CD-ROM. So how is that possible? That's possible because the data on that CD-ROM is encoded using something called erasure coding. And the way that works is like, let's say you have one megabyte of data, for example. What you can do is you can apply uh, erasure coding on that data to effectively blow that one megabyte of data up to two, to two megabytes, such that if you take this two megabytes of data and if any half of it is missing, you can reconstruct half of it from the other half. And that's including like any half of the data, like any chunk, as long as you have half the chunks of the data, you can reconstruct the other half. So it's kind of like a way to extrapolate data or to recover data. It's kind of like a self-healing file. Like if you damage that file, it can kind of like repair itself. From the from the remaining pieces of the data the file, almost like if you kind of like uh, have a wound, you, you kind of, your body repairs itself. So what that means is that if you apply that for a blockchain, if you apply erasure coding onto a one megabyte block, for example, you now have a two megabyte block. But what that means is that means that you no longer need to make sure that one hundred percent of the data is available to make sure that it's all available. You only need to make sure that fifty percent of the data is available to know that it's all available. Because if you know that 50% of the data is available, then you know that you can always reconstruct the other 50% from that 50% that you, that you know that you have. Now, so then that's a very kind of powerful piece of information that you can use to create a game where as a user, if I know that I only need to make sure that, to make sure that the person who created that block or the miner that created that block is being honest, if the, if the miner is trying to hide a piece of data, they need to hide at least half that data. So all I need to make, do is make sure that half the data is available. What I can do is I can download random pieces of that block, right? 
if I download one random piece of that block and the miner is being malicious and I landed in the part of the block that's not available and I don't get a response, then I know that block is not available. So then if I do one uh, sample, there's a 50% chance that I know the block is available. Then you do two samples, it's 75%, three samples, 87.5%, until you get to 16 samples, yeah, you have like a 99% guarantee. Then after 70 samples, you have a extremely high guarantee that's lower than the probability of a hardware failure. And that's effectively how it works. Add a, add a little more onto that. Um, it's it's sort of the one way to one mental model to think about it that I find useful is uh, like flipping a coin where each time you sample the block, you download just a small, tiny part of it, and it lands heads, meaning the data is available, you get a, an increased confidence that the, the whole block is available. So if you flip heads, you know, 16 times in a row, it's like, okay, well, the statistical odds of me flipping heads every time is is really low. So therefore, it actually, all the data must be available. And um, what's powerful about this is that it enables the underlying chain, an underlying chain that employs data availability sampling can scale with the number of people who are sampling. So the number of users running light nodes allows the block size to increase. And so unlike a uh, you know, standard blockchain where there's a fixed block size, data availability sampling makes the block size elastic and able to grow with demand and usage. So it's, 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 like, it's sort of like the broadband moment of, of uh, Web3 where all of a sudden we have a, a, a step change in the, the scaling properties of, of blockchains that will actually, you know, makes it feasible for us to scale to millions and, and hopefully in the future, even billions of users and still remain trust minimized because end users can run these sampling nodes on hardware like a smartphone that everyone has. So it makes the blockchain really scalable while still being verifiable. Wow. And so right now, what would the size of the block be given the number of data samplers that you have? Or I don't know if I phrased that correctly, but you understand what I'm asking. Yeah, so right now, because um, we only launched mainnet three kind of three months ago, we have, we've set, we've started with a relatively small block size, which is eight megabytes, which is still twenty times more than EIP four eight four four. But this is to allow um, an early network of light nodes to kind of bootstrap itself. So in the, in our incentivized testnet, there was a thousand light nodes, and there's lots of people, there's many people running light nodes on on mainnet, but it's still early stages because we need more metrics. We need like um, kind of like systematic metrics for the community to know, okay, this is how many light nodes there are on the network. Therefore, it's safe to increase the block size. Because the, the problem with light nodes is that they're not stable resistant. It's like anyone can run a light node. Mm. So you kind of like need to have kind of good off-chain metrics to kind of like analyze how many light nodes, how many real or how many total light nodes there are. And that's something that kind of the, the community is kind of building out. No, so I'm sorry, when you said a thousand, that was in testnet. How many light nodes do you have now on mainnet? There isn't like a clear metrics on that because there needs to be a crawler to kind of map out the the, the light node network to kind of count how many light nodes there are. Okay, and you're building that, or, or that's being built, or yeah, that's being built by um, a team called Igor, which is kind of building a Rust node uh, for for Celestia. Okay, okay, so I guess it's a mystery for now. Um, so in a moment, we'll talk a little bit more about the vision for Celestia, but first, a quick word from the sponsors who make this show possible. Polkadot is the largest layer zero blockchain with over 2,000 developers. And the anticipated Polkadot 2.0 upgrade will be a massive accelerator for the ecosystem. Upgrading the infrastructure with eight times higher transaction throughput and twice as fast block times, 
perfectly tailored core time for the needs of every protocol, trustless bridges internally and into Ethereum, Cosmos, Near, and Binance Smart Chain, revised tokenomics and the implementation of a token burn to reduce inflation. Perfect for GameFi and DeFi to build, grow, and scale with one of the most active crypto communities in the space. Polkadot recently announced a partnership with Mythical Games, bringing top games like NFT Rivals with over 650,000 players and 43 million transactions to pave the way for GameFi and the Polkadot ecosystem. Get your Web3 ideas to market fast with economics that work for you. Think big, build bigger with Polkadot. Join the community at polkadot.network slash ecosystem slash community. DeFi just got way easier with VaultCraft, a blockchain infrastructure for building, deploying, and monetizing non-custodial yield strategies in a few clicks. Forget spending months of R&D, capital, and human resources when you can now instantly launch your crypto fund with VaultCraft on any EVM chain. From wallets and institutional service providers to a non-DeFi DGENs, VaultCraft supercharges your crypto assets by enabling instant cross-chain yield strategies that you can deploy in one minute. Now anyone can supercharge their crypto portfolios with custom-tailored DeFi strategies. Join VaultCraft's referral program, unite with the community, and supercharge your crypto. Details on vaultcraft.io. Back to my conversation with Nick and Mustafa. So we talked about modular blockchains, we talked about you know, how uh, this will allow many kind of more uh, application-specific chains and roll-ups. Um, we talked about how Celestia is providing this data availability layer. So now um, now that this is launched, like, how do you think this will change the crypto space? Like, you know, what new kinds of applications will be enabled or what kinds of things will they be able to do now with Celestia? We talked about a few of them. I think the, the first sort of category are, are applications that need a lot of block space and have a lot of really high throughput requirements. So some of the ones that Mustafa mentioned earlier are things like on-chain DeFi applications, like some of these uh, options exchanges, they have a lot of demand for block space, right? And, and only Celestia can provide that because we have data availability sampling, we have the ability to increase our block space with the amount of demand and users. Other things that fall into that category to me are things like on-chain gaming, where there's just going to be a huge high volume of transactions and they're going to need a very uh, you know, cheap place to post that data. And um, kind of related to that and building off of it are uh, a lot of the, uh, there's a huge demand in the Ethereum ecosystem to launch Ethereum L2s. And the, the issue is that Ethereum block space is quite limited because it is monolithic. And so there's a, there's a limited amount of, of uh, sort of like data that you can post to Ethereum. And so it's quite expensive. So only the, the sort of like most well-funded or most like highly used ETH L2s can afford to use Ethereum as their data availability layers, those things like Optimism or Arbitrum, for example. Um, but all these other teams that want to deploy L2s in the Ethereum ecosystem are kind of priced out. And so Celestia has come in and provided a place for them to post data that is dramatically cheaper and makes their application actually feasible. And so rather than having to pay literally millions of dollars in uh, DA fees, uh, they can cut that by 99%. And all of a sudden, their uh, gas, the gas cost for users is now on par with uh, chains like Solana. So we're making the Ethereum ecosystem uh, competitive with uh, a lot of these alt L1s by providing this really cheap uh, DA. And so we're seeing a lot of demand for rollups to deploy on Celestia while still settling to Ethereum. 
So we're helping this sort of scale the Ethereum uh, L2 ecosystem with this cheap modular DA. And then um, part of this is um, something called Blobstream and also something called Blobspace. Could not really figure out what this was in my research before. And I mean, I have like a definition written down, but if you could just explain how all that fits in, that would be helpful, not just for me, but for the listener. Yeah, so I can take this one. So um, kind of block, Blobstream is effectively the way that Ethereum rollups can use Celestia for data availability. Uh, effectively, it's like a one-way bridge between Celestia to Ethereum, but it's not a bridge for relaying assets or transferring assets. It's a bridge for basically like transferring da data commitments. So the way it works is that the Celestia data commitment is relayed to Ethereum um, every hour or so into a smart contract. And, the, and then that basically allows Ethereum rollups to reference data on Celestia using a, uh, a proof that that data was included in that Celestia data commitment. And so that, that basically allows people to build L2s and L3s on Ethereum that use Celestia for data availability. Okay. And so something else that was interesting to me is, um, I guess in the event of a fork, um, Celestia would actually make it easier for the two chains to fork. Um, can you explain how that works? I think, um, are you referring to the concept of sovereign rollups? I don't know. I, I was either listening to a podcast or I read something where it talked about how if this had been available at the time of like the DAO or, um, you know, when Bitcoin did its big fork, that it would have made these contentious hard forks less contentious. Yeah, so that, that's, um, that goes into the topic of sovereign rollups. So it's worth explaining what is a sovereign rollup. So if you look at like traditional rollups, when rollups were kind of first popularized, uh, rollups were originally kind of proposed as a way to scale an L1. It's like rollups being an L2 to an L1. Like, but what I kind of realized is that it's possible to just have a rollup as an independent chain in its own right. Like a rollup does not have to be an L2. Like a rollup can be like an independent blockchain, like a layer one chain is, but it's not a layer two to any other chain. It's just like an independent chain on its own right that happens to post or use another chain for the availability and consensus. But that does not make it an L2 because it does not mean that that kind of like rollup needs to have an enshrined bridge to that data availability layer. And the reason why this is interesting is because this is kind of like the original vision of Cosmos, but the idea is like you can create your own Cosmos chain um, and that Cosmos chain has sovereignty because it's like an independent chain in its own right. But it has the ability to hard fork, right? Whereas like if you create a smart contract or a DAO on Ethereum, it's not really um, easy to hard fork that smart contract without hard forking the Ethereum chain itself. Whereas if you create your own sovereign chain, whether it's a sovereign rollup or a sovereign L1, the community of the rollup can kind of like hard fork and uh, it, it's a chain if you wanted to. Uh, and I think the ability to hard fork is very important. And because to me, the, the whole point of blockchains is that they implement kind of like the rules that social consensus has decided. It's basically like an implementation of a, of a social contract. So it's like if you're deploying a smart contract in Ethereum, you're inheriting the social consensus of Ethereum. But what if you want to have your own social kind of consensus or social layer? Because Ethereum, uh, when, as you mentioned, the DAO hack, you know, around 2017, there was this massive hack on this big contract in Ethereum called the DAO. 
2016, and something like 5% of the Ethereum supply was compromised. And the Ethereum developers decided to hard fork the Ethereum chain to undo that hack. And then um, if I remember correctly, there was like another hack, similar hack uh, of like something like $100 million. I think it was parity, if I, if, if, if I remember correctly. But they didn't hard fork in that case because it didn't constitute as big of a percent of the, of the Ethereum supply. So then the question is like, why should only like big contracts be able to hard fork? And this is why the idea of like having your own sovereign chain can be important. Because um, if a, a DAO is if a DAO is uh, on a smart contract on Ethereum, then it's not sovereign. Cause it does not have the ability to hard fork. Whereas if a DAO on its own chain has the ability to hard fork, if it wanted to, and that's to me that's an extremely important kind of like part of, of a blockchain, like a part of extremely part of a, a, a part of cryptocurrency is this ability for the community to hard fork to, to do upgrades via hard forks. Oh, now I get it. So it's not necessarily that the existence of Celestia would have prevented it. It's more this vision of these modular blockchains allow these app chains, and then the app chains can do their own forks that don't affect the rest of the execution environment. Is that? Yeah, exactly. Oh, it's, it's, not, it's not so much the idea of Celestia itself. It's the idea of the this idea of sovereign rollups, which mm-hmm. we kind of like, which 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 Celestia introduced. And sovereign rollup is the same as like the notion of an app chain. Yeah, it's basically, I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't have to be an app chain. It can be like a general purpose chain, but it's similar to layer one. Like the same way that a layer one can hard fork, a sovereign rollup can also hard fork because like the difference between a sovereign rollup and like, let's say a, tra- a traditional Ethereum rollup is that a traditional Ethereum rollup has what I call like an enshrined bridge to Ethereum. Like you can say that rollup is defined by the bridge on Ethereum. It's like, it's defined by by the smart contract in Ethereum, the canonical chain for that rollup is is what the bridge says it is. But for a sovereign rollup, the idea is like, okay, well, what if we don't enshrine the bridge? What if we just say this is actually an independent chain on its own right, and the bridges are secondary in the same way that a layer one bridge is secondary to the layer one itself? It's uh. sort of like the difference of, between being like a state within the United States or under some like larger like federation or like a country versus being your own country. So like a sovereign rollup is a lot more like its own country that can do its own rules and make changes, whatever, however the community decides. Whereas if you're a, a t- standard sort of settled Ethereum rollup, you have, you're still kind of bound by Ethereum, the country that you are sort of like incorporated under. Okay. And then to Continue that analogy. So since they're all sharing security, then if you are this separate country, like it's like you're part of NATO along with other countries. Is that another way to extend the analogy? Yeah, yeah. Because Celestia, yeah, I guess in, in like typically if you're your own independent country, then you have to have your own military and have to do all these, like provide your own infrastructure essentially. Um, but in, in, and that would be sort of more like the cosmos model is you have to bootstrap your own chain, have your own proof of stake token, all that stuff. But in, in the Celestia model, you're still sovereign, you have full control, but then you, you're, you're part of like an alliance essentially, where you can inherit the, uh, infrastructure and security of this, this bigger sort of network, which would be Celestia. All right. So then which types of crypto projects do you think should, you know, go that route versus like trying to do the more traditional, like we're going to have our own security you know, now that there's all these options, like what types of projects do you think 
should, you know, go more like, yeah, Cosmos Ethereum route themselves versus, um, you know, being more or really anywhere along the spectrum. I don't know how many different options you think there are, but I'd be interested to hear like how developers should think about those choices. Well, to me, I think um, so that there's, there's sort of a spectrum between launching your uh, application as a smart contract on a shared execution layer like Ethereum or Solana. Uh, and then there's being a fully you know, custom application-specific chain with its own consensus and its own blockchain completely. And then you have like the spectrum of like rollups, uh, whether they're settled or, or sovereign. Um, and I think, you know, if I were a developer, uh, there's nothing inherently wrong with, with running your application as a smart contract. And in fact, there's some advantages, especially in today's world where, you know, you get to be part of an, a pre-existing community with liquidity and users by launching an Ethereum or Solana out of the box. But then what could happen is that you launch your application there, you start to get traction, you get users, you get liquidity, and you build up a brand for yourself. And all of a sudden you realize like, I'm getting, I'm hitting the constraints of, you know, the EVM or, or the Solana VM or just the underlying scaling properties of these monolithic blockchains. You might think, okay, maybe there's, a, there's actually a real reason for me to launch my own chain. Um, and then I'll get more scalability and I can customize certain things to make the, the user experience of my application more powerful. And so then you would look at the different options and um, if for some reason the customization required you to have your own chain, like its own consensus, then, you know, obviously you should go that route. Um, but for the most part, for most, I would say like 90% or 90, even 99% of applications, I think that they get the, the bulk of the advantages by just being a roll-up because a lot of the customizations that they're going to want will be in the execution layer aspect, which they have full control over in the modular stack. Uh, and, and if they want to customize things like have an encrypted mempool or, or some of these more fancy things, there will also actually be modular components like that that have been that are being built by other projects in the modular stack, like the, sort of this new emerging layer called the shared sequencing layer. That's kind of the way I think about it. Is like you can prototype as a smart contract, and then as you mature, you're gonna, you, you're probably going to want to migrate to becoming your own chain at some point. Uh, it's just sort of like the the arc, I think, of, of development kind of naturally. Yeah, another important kind of aspect. Um, I wanted to mention is that if you create your own layer one chain or Cosmos chain, you usually have to like pay a massive security budget in terms of new token issuance, you know, like, you know, 10, 20%. Um, and that's a kind of like, like, that's a very huge security cost to maintaining a proof of stake value asset. But if you deploy it as a rollup um, with its own token, you don't have to pay this huge inflation or kind of token issuance um, security budget to incentivize validators because you don't need a whole proof of stake validator set. You can just have a, you know, a few sequences will do because the rollup inher already inherits the censorship resistance, ideally, of the base layer. And, and also, I mean, on that point, launching, you know, coordinating a launch of a blockchain is, is actually pretty difficult because you have to, there are a lot of validators out there and a lot of them are very sophisticated, but you still have to you know, gather them all together uh, and coordinate everything and run test nets and all these things. Whereas like a rollup, you can just do out of the box. So one of the things I, I kind of joked about uh, when Celestia launched is like Celestia went through the effort of launching a blockchain and you know issuing a proof of stake uh, a token and all these things so that you don't have to. It's sort of like we're, we're going through the effort so that you in the future, when you want to launch your blockchain, don't have to go through all of that work, which is very time consuming and, and, and expensive. 
All right. So at this point, Celestia has partnered with StarkNet to offer data availability for layer threes. Um, You've also partnered with Polygon to integrate Celestia into their chain development kit. There's other data availability solutions that are also coming to market like Avail, Near DA, EigenDA, et cetera. So it sort of feels like we're coming to this moment where there's going to be a number of solutions available. Um, Potentially, they would also partner with, you know, some of the same partners that you um, already have. And so is it just going to be this future where each application or or roll-up or whatever will choose their own data availability layer the same way that we see, um, you know, in Web2, there's like different companies offering software as a service for anything from, you know, like payments to, you know, your, your website or whatever. So like, is, is that kind of the future we're heading toward? Yeah. So, I mean, um, yeah, it's interesting because Celestia is the kind of like first specialized data availability layer to launch before any other competitor. Um, so this is kind of like huge first mover advantage, but I don't think it will boil down to costs. Because, you know, the costs are extremely already low, already low. You know, it's like a hundredth of a cent to do a roll-up transaction on Celestia. I don't think making it a thousandth of a cent or ten thousandth of a, of a cent is kind of significantly moving the needle um, for a roll-up developer. So I think it will fundamentally da- boil down to things like, you know, what are the security properties kind of roll-up developers want? And also, mo- more importantly, what is the developer usability going to be like? Celestia Labs and other kind of development teams have put a lot of effort into creating integrations with kind of popular all-up frameworks like, you know, Optimism and Arbitrum. And I think the more kind of like integrations Celestia has with other frameworks, the more of a kind of good developer user experience kind of evolves around it. And the more of a big community kind of like evolves around it. And so it kind of becomes this, this network effect in a sense that um, the more integrations you have, the more easy it is to, to kind of use it and support it as a day layer. Uh, kind of, I think that's one element of it. And the other element of it is um, kind of like, what are the security properties of that day layer that you want? Like different day layers have like different security properties or different trade-offs. Because Celestia is, you know, has obviously data availability sampling. So it has crypto, it's crypto economic security, but other day layers kind of, kind of structure this might be structured differently. Whereas like EigenDA, for example, resembles more of like a data availability committee because there is no, like there's, there's no data availability sampling or data availability proofs. It's just, you have to sort of like trust the, um, the EigenDA kind of validator nodes to say that this data is available, if that makes sense. Because you can't, you can't slash on-chain data availability. Okay. So Celestia also has the TIA token, as you mentioned. Um, describe how that's used. Yeah, so the TIA token has several um, uses. Um, I think the, the first and most important uses, use case is for the payment of transaction fees on Celestia, including the payment for blobs on Celestia. The other use is to for on-chain governance. There's these on-chain kind of governance parameters on Celestia that people can vote on, including the community pool. So it's like this kind of like um, pool of funds that the community can vote to be spent in certain ways, pretty much like other, other, every other Cosmos chain. And then you also have, obviously, it's a proof of stake token that secures the network. You have to stake it into order to kind of like elect validators on the network. And finally, um, it's also kind of emerging as this kind of token that you can use to bootstrap rollups. Like if you're, if you're bootstrapping a rollup, you might not necessarily want to bootstrap a token with that rollup immediately. 
So kind of just like how ETH is is used as a gas token for um, Ethereum rollups, Celestia can also be used as a kind of like token to bootstrap all rollups, whether that's as a gas token or whether that's to require some tokens to be bonded to become a sequencer in that rollup. Then Celestia, the Tia token kind of becomes a natural choice for that. And I'm sure you probably saw this on Twitter because um, I asked what I should ask you and someone, um, you know, linked to this tweet, but uh, Omid Malaikan called out Celestia's token tweeting, congrats to Celestia for achieving what seemingly every new L1 strives for. No, not sustainable adoption or credible neutrality, but combining a low float with a lot of hype to achieve an absurd FTV, meaning fully diluted valuation. So Right now, your FTV is about $20 billion. What do you say to his criticism? Well, I think it's pretty hard to say that Celestia has no adoption when like, almost all new Ethereum rollups are using Celestia for DA. And something like 70% of all new Arbitrum orbit chains are using Celestia for DA. And 70% of DeFi option volume is using Celestia for DA. So I think that's pretty clear adoption. But in terms of FTV or price, that's um, you know I can't really I can't really comment on that. That's not what we're kind of here for. We're here for the long term to build a kind of like a sustainable and scalable data availability layer. Okay, and Mustafa, I have to ask you about your history before you got into crypto because you are rather famous for having hacked the CIA when you were sixteen. That's a really just interesting tidbit. So, can you tell us more about that? And um, you know the path that led you from that to where you are now? Yeah, sure. So um, I kind of like got into computer programming from a very early age when I was like eight or nine. And from there, I kind of like realized that programmers can make mistakes in the way that they kind of create their software. And from there, I kind of like started poking holes in like various different websites I was visiting. And that's kind of how I got into hacking. But I kind of got first got into it from a kind of an activist perspective when I was kind of 14, 15. Um, when I was kind of like joined various hacker chat rooms. And this was back when the kind of hacker group Anonymous was active. And I sort of kind of got involved with various operations. Back then they were kind of like mostly doing these denial of service attacks against you know companies like MasterCard and uh, Visa as a response to, for example, them blocking donations to WikiLeaks. But then I start, I wanted to kind of like take it a bit further to see, okay, like now service attacks, they're kind of interesting, but they don't do much. So I kind of decided to see, well, why not I put together most the most technically uh, capable pe- people in this group to see if we can actually like do something more uh, substantial in terms of like uncovering wrongdoing by like hacking into kind of corporations or companies to kind of expose emails or expose data that might kind of reveal wrongdoing. And that's kind of like what we ended up doing. For example, we hacked into a company called HB Gary Federal, which was like a US military contractor. And it was revealed they were doing all kinds of things like astroturfing or creating like fake social media profiles or developing malware to kind of like spy on journalists and that kind of thing. But then eventually um, we ended up kind of creating this group called LulzSec, which kind of went on this 50-day hacking spree that went to do all kinds of things, as you mentioned, do a denial of service attack against the CIA. That was kind of like the most kind of hype thing. Even though it technically wasn't a hack, it was like a denial of service attack kind of against the CIA. But because it's the CIA, it was kind of like very embarrassing for the CIA. I guess that's like the most high profile target. So that's the one that people kind of talk, talk about a lot. 
And then how did you make that transition over to crypto? Yeah, I mean, because this was back in 2011, 2010. So I was kind of like already following Bitcoin back then. Um, because I was out like before, because part of the reason I got involved into this hacking from activist perspective is because I was interested in kind of like peer-to-peer file sharing. Uh, there was like this website, uh, there still is this website called the Pirate Bay, which kind of like was subjected to like a lot of like, um, like governments trying to shut it down. To me, that was really interesting that you had this peer-to-peer file sharing technology called BitTorrent and people were kind of like sharing files illegally, copyrighted files illegally. And the U.S. government and the, motion, the entire movie industry and the music industry was, it was trying to shut it down, but they couldn't because BitTorrent was decentralized. And to me, that was, that was really fascinating because it was evidence that like decentralized technology was extremely powerful. So I was one kind of big, and, and even before Bitcoin, I was kind of like trying to think about like what else can be decentralized. Like you managed, we managed to decentralize pay-to-pay file sharing. Like, what if we decentralize the domain, the, the domain name system? Because, like, they're trying to take down the, the pirate bay domain names, for example, or trying to create like decentralized social media, for example, or decentralized chat rooms. And those were things that a lot of people, including myself, were thinking about um, before BitTorrent was, was before Bitcoin was even created. So when Bitcoin was uh, kind of introduced to the world, that was the kind of like naturally very interesting to me, and I kind of I followed it very closely. And you know, around 2013. Uh, when I was following it closely, I was kind of following this block size war. This was when Bitcoin reached its one megabyte block size limit, um, and there was this huge internal debate. And then there was like this fork, this 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 Bitcoin Cash uh, fork, um, and so that was like a very interesting problem to me. And I wanted, I started thinking about more about how can we do base layer scaling on on for blockchains. How can we scale the base layer without compromising on security and decentralization? which is why the Bitcoin community did not want to increase the block size limit above one megabyte because they, they feared that it would become more expensive to run nodes that verify the chain. And so that's why I became interested in kind of like base layer scalability and um, light nodes. And that's why I kind of pursued a PhD in it in 2016. Interesting. Wow. I, I love the that story. Um, so let's talk about the future of Celestia. Um, obviously, we've mostly talked about it applied to EVM environments. You know, you guys are um, allowing these uh, Ethereum L2s to, um, you, you know, uh, ha- be a lot cheaper, basically, and to scale. Um, but I'm sure you're aware there's a lot of layer twos on Bitcoin actually coming out. So um, I had somebody ask me on Twitter if you saw Celestia becoming a data availability layer for Bitcoin rollups. Well, it's funny because I, that's something that I, we were just discussing the other day um, because we were seeing the same pattern of, of all these Bitcoin L2s popping up. And then we thought, well, we've built this data bridge for Ethereum called Blobstream. Could we actually use it on, on Bitcoin? And Mustafa had this idea of actually creating uh, there's like this new like BitVM on Bitcoin. And there's a way that we could actually verify the same data commitments on Bitcoin and potentially actually uh, provide a DA, scalable DA for, for Bitcoin L2s. But I don't know, Mustafa should uh, explain more of his vision because he's he's the more of the OG Bitcoiner. Yeah, so I mean, there's a team called um, Chainway, I believe, that's deploying a EVM roll-up on Bitcoin. It's like a Z, um, ZK EVM roll-up on Bitcoin. And the idea is like, well, we can easily deploy Blobstream to that because uh, the, the Blobstream is basically... Uh, is meant to be deployed on EVM chains, because it's basically a Solidity smart contract. So you can deploy on, on any EVM chain. So if we just deploy Blobstream on this Bitcoin EVM rollup, 
then you can deploy um, Bitcoin L3s on top of this rollup that used to last year as data availability layer. And it makes a lot of sense because, you know, Bitcoin's data availability capacity is even way more limited than Ethereum. Like, it's only got like 10 minute block times, you know, four megabytes every 10 minutes. It's way, it's even, it's very limited in terms of data availability. So I think ultimately for rollups to succeed on Bitcoin, you do fundamentally need external um, data availability layers. Yeah, I actually just interviewed them on uh, my premium offering and they talked about their new um, roll-up uh, Citrea. And it was really interesting because actually um, another project that I had talked to was Botanics. And I guess that's more like a side chain. But, but uh, you know, I suddenly was like, oh, wow, there's like a lot of activity. And there's a third I think I'm going to be talking to soon. Um, and then, of course, this is like a perennial question, but, um, you know, there's always these memes about Solestia, like, you know, Solana. And Solana already has really cheap fees. Um, they're going the monolithic route. But, you know, I don't know if you see a world where Solania would, Solana would also utilize Celestia. I think it's unlikely for Solana to utilize Celestia because um, I think the Solana community has made it pretty clear that they don't consider like layer twos as part of the kind of like scaling vision of Solana. There isn't really that much of a reason. Like if you're building a layer two, you probably want to build you probably don't want to build it on a chain where that's not really that's that's not what it's about. Uh, or that's, that's not what that's not what the community kind of coalesces around. But it is in theory possible like it, we could deploy a blob stream, a version of blob stream on Solana, for example. And I believe um yeah there's like the neon EVM right on Solana. So we can deploy blob stream on Neon technically, um, as it is, and then you, Solana contracts could reference data on Celestia. But I think you, you were asking if Solana uh, hosts its data to Celestia or Ethereum, because I think that's also like a, a common thing that Anatoly says, well, like Solana could become like a Ethereum L2 if it just posts its data to Ethereum. That's kind of like a more long-winded discussion, I suppose. And But if that happened, then would Celestia be involved? Um, I mean... It, it, like it could do like if it could if Solana wanted to, I mean I, I wouldn't see a reason for Solana if if Solana wanted to become an Ethereum L two, uh, yeah I wouldn't see a reason for it to post its data to Celestia because then that's just using because then that's that's an off chain data availability from the perspective of Ethereum then it might as well just use Solana for data availability if it's going to be off chain anyway from the perspective of Ethereum. So like in that kind of if if it was to be Ethereum L two I think it makes sense for you would have to post the data to Ethereum itself. So then, and Nick, I feel like I asked you this before and I don't even remember what you said, but so then why is there this meme about the Celestia? I still don't understand it. I, I think it's it stems from a few things, but at a high level, it's that so like, you know, this year and, and going to the future, there's been this like mon- monolithic versus modular debate for a really long time since sort of the inception of Celestia. Uh, and it's now... Now that Celestia is launched, we actually have, you know, two protocols that are kind of embody monolithic and modular. So Solana is sort of like in the staunchly in the monolithic camp and Celestia is staunchly in the modular camp. And so there's sort of like this, this tension, I would say, of like, these are the two protocols that represent those, those uh, respective visions. And so there's sort of like this, uh, you know, let's see how, how the market reacts and actually which sort of architecture wins out in the long run. I also think there's a, so that's part of it, but there's also a part of it that is about the fact that Solana and Celestia do share some common ground in the sense of that we both believe in the abundance of block space and we both believe in optimizing 
you know, the underlying technology of blockchains to the maximum so that we can achieve, you know, the best scalability. It's just that we, we kind of have a philosophical uh, difference in how we, how we think the, the best way to achieve that is. And so um, I think there's, it's the fact that there's a common ground, but also these, these differences between the two protocols uh, that, that gives, gives the, the significance to this Solestia meme. Okay. So now let's just talk about what's kind of next up for Celestia. Um, I, you know, am seeing these announcements with these kind of business partnerships. So I imagine that um, that's part of it. I also, you know, wanted to just ask about this dimension, um, which allows people to easily deploy role apps. And it recently launched and it sort of seems like they, Celestia and Dimension could work together um, but yeah, just you could talk about that or just whatever else is on the short-term roadmap for Celestia. Yeah, I mean, in the short term, from an adoption perspective, uh, we've had there's been all these kind of like roll-ups that have deployed on Celestia on testnet, and then now there's this coming to mainnet, and Dimension is one of them. Uh, so like Dimension is very cool because you know uh, they had like they had a testnet with like ten thousand kind of roll-ups on top of it, like. Not all of them kind of like are meaningful rollups. Maybe only a fraction of it only had actual users' applications. But it kind of like really demonstrates the point that deploying a rollup can be as easily as deploying your smart contract. So you can imagine a future where L2 Beat right now has 30, 30 rollups. But in the future, like in a few years from now, we could have like 10,000 rollups. And it, it, it would be definitely be a challenge tracking all of those. It's kind of like also various, like in the past few months, a lot of the adoption of Celestia has, been, has mainly been from Ethereum L2s. Uh, or Ethereum rollups, um, well, not rollups, but Validiums and, and Optimiums. But going like in the next few months, we're going to expect to see a lot more like um, non-Ethereum or like Cosmos native kind of like rollup projects emerging. Dimension is one of them, but there's also one called the Sovereign SDK, uh, which is kind of really cool. It's like it's, it's it, they do Sovereign ZK rollups where you can like you can write your application in Rust and it's, you can deploy a Sovereign ZK rollup on top of it. There's also like shared sequencer projects like Astria. You can deploy rollup on a shared sequencer. So that's kind of like where we stand from an adoption perspective. From a more kind of the core development, from a core development perspective, the Celestia community has recently launched this um, thing called Celestia Improvement Proposals. Because now there's a broader kind of like core development ecosystem outside of just Celestia Labs. You know, there's many people like there's you know as I mentioned, Iger is one of them. There's also teams like PK Labs and and various Cosmos development entities, including like Informal and Strangelove, and they're kind of all participating in this. Um, it's very similar to the Ethereum kind of like EIP process, but it's for Celestia, and there's kind of like various things kind of emerging from that. One one of the more exciting things emerging from that is this idea of because right now Celestia does as I mentioned does not have smart contracts. So right now you cannot do a trust minimized bridge from Celestia to a rollup. Right now you have to kind of like go through an intermediary third party like Hyperlane or or like Axelar. But so unlike Ethereum, you can have a direct kind of like bridge between Ethereum and a rollup because it has got smart contracts. We're doing uh, there's this proposal to have like these zk smart accounts on Celestia, so you can create like accounts on Celestia controlled by a zk program. And this, the reason why I think this is exciting is because it's very similar to Bitcoin rollups because right now um, the Bitcoin rollup that you mentioned by Chainway team does not have a trust minimized bridge with Bitcoin. It's like a sovereign rollup on Bitcoin. But in the future, Bitcoin will need to embed, will need to have a hard fork or soft fork 
to add a new ZK opcode to Bitcoin to allow you to allow ZK rollups to kind of bridge to Bitcoin. And so Celestia is kind of like a very similar um, mechanism. And to me, it's kind of like really cool because it allows you to achieve what's called uh, kind of like functional escape velocity without having to have smart contracts on the chain because it allows you to basically um, extend the functionality of the base layer without having smart contracts because historically it's been thought that the only way to uh, ex have to extend the base layer is to have smart contracts. But with 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 enshrining a zk opcode and zk rollups, I think it is going to prove that smart contracts on the base layer aren't necessary. Interesting. Wait, but um, but you're talking about on Bitcoin smart contracts on the Bitcoin base layer? No, I'm talking about like um, zk rollups on Bitcoin will need a soft fork on Bitcoin to add a zk opcode to Bitcoin. So there's like various discussion in the Bitcoin community to add zk opcodes. So you can like verify like a ZK program on Bitcoin and that will allow you to deploy a ZK rollup in Bitcoin. The reason why that's cool is because it allows you to have rollups. It allows you to have rollups in Bitcoin despite the fact that Bitcoin does not have smart oh, contracts. I see what you're saying. Okay. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Oh, wow. Yeah, that will, I feel like, really change the game for Ethereum. Or sorry, Bitcoin, because, um, yeah, the, I mean... I feel like I've heard different sources say for a long time that Bitcoin at some point will need to implement privacy. So um, that will, yeah, be a big, a big game changer. All right. Well, you guys, this has been a fascinating discussion. I've absolutely loved it. Where can people learn more about each of you and your work in Celestia? So uh, the best place to lot is Celestia.org. Uh, there's a lot of like kind of like uh, introductory material there. We have like a section with like a part of the website called Learn Modular that where you can learn about the basics of modular blockchains. Nick? Yeah, and I think um, another great place is to follow Celestia on Twitter. So we're at Celestia.org. I think Mustafa and I are both on Twitter too. Um, and sharing, I'm, I'm a perpetual modular bull and, and trying to educate people about the benefits of modular blockchains. And so um, that's what you can expect from me. <laughs> great. Well, we'll put your handles in the show notes. Thank you so much for coming on Unchained. Thanks, Laura. Thanks. Thanks so much for joining us today. To learn more about Nick, Mustafa, Celestia, and Modular Blockchains, check out the show notes for this episode. Unchained is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Nelson Wong, Matt Pilchard, Juan Aranovich, Megan Gavis, Shashank, and Marka Curia. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.